fly around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop 'em black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. We are setting the table today with the preservation of Appalachian foodways. My guest is John Tullock of Knoxville. He grew up on a farm and helped his grandmother in the kitchen in Greenville, Tennessee. And we're going to discuss his latest book entitled Appalachian Cooking, New and Traditional Recipes. And John will also share his way of making succotash. We'll also get to hear from Dee and Jim Brown. They own and run Honey Rock Herb Farm in Louisville, Tennessee. And Dee's going to share her recipe for sage cornbread. And to go on that cornbread, we'll also hear from Iva Spoon Wild of Wallen, Tennessee, and she'll let us know how to make our own butter. Fred Sausman shares a potluck radio segment about the beloved Hobnob Drive-In. It opened in 1952. Thank you so much for tuning in today by radio or podcast. I'm just so happy to have you sitting with us at our big Tennessee table. Now let's get started. I'd like to introduce you to my first guest, Knoxville resident John Tullock. John teaches classes on food gardening for the University of Tennessee Gardens and gives presentations throughout East Tennessee. He's the author of more than 15 how-to books, including Pay Dirt, How to Make $10,000 a Year from Your Backyard Garden, plus Idiot's Guides on Vegetable Gardening, The New American Homestead, sustainable and self-sufficient living in the city or county. And in 2006, the American Horticultural Society honored his book, Growing Hardy Orchids, with an American Horticultural Society Award. John blogs regularly about food gardening and sustainable living at johntullock.blogspot.com. He is a self-employed sustainable technology consultant with clients in the United States and Italy. You may have heard John along with Master Gardener Sue Hamilton on their former gardening radio show in the not-too-distant past. 
John is such a nice person with a calm and deeply rooted demeanor, and he's just a joy to visit with. And again, the book that we're going to be discussing today is his latest, Appalachian Cooking, New and Traditional Recipes. So let's get to know him and hear about this book right now. So, John, will you tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born and raised? I grew up in Greenville, Tennessee. Uh, That's about uh, 80 miles to the northeast of Knoxville, up at the foot of the uh, mountains there. And uh, I lived there my entire life until I graduated from high school and came here to attend the University of Tennessee in 1968, and I've lived in Knoxville ever since. So I've lived in Knoxville longer than I lived in my hometown, by a long shot. After I graduated here, I taught for the university. I went to graduate school, and then I taught for the university for a while. And then I left and went into private business. But uh, but my background is Greenville, and uh, grew up on a farm up there, not in the city. My grandfather, farmed the same land that his grandfather farmed, and although it was, by that time, the original tract had been broken up amongst uh, family members as different people died and brothers and sisters divided up the, the property, but my grandfather still at that point had about 50, uh, 50 acre farm, which was sufficient to grow a cash crop of tobacco and then lots of other uh, crops. We had, of course, all the usual things and cows and hogs up until I was maybe a teenager. We still had hogs. Always chickens. Always a huge vegetable garden. I remember a lot of times of helping my grandmother with various chores. She would put up massive quantities of tomatoes and green beans and Mm -hmm things like that in the summer, and I would always have to do gopher jobs, you know, for her. <laughs> so, uh, oh, yeah, keep you busy. And... Yeah, my grandfather, we had uh, yellow transparent apple trees that made June apples, I believe, and my grandfather then would make apple butter out of those in a big old cast iron kettle outside uh, on an open fire. Uh, so... It wasn't easy. I don't suppose it was an easy life. I was very sheltered from all of the... We lived next door. My parents and I lived next door to my grandparents in a modern house that was built in 1954. And so we had all of the conveniences that were available then, but then we stepped down to my grandparents' house. And it was sometime after that that they actually got indoor bathroom. So uh, they still had a, a, an outdoor bathroom uh, Probably as late as 1960. Mm. The, uh, but it gave me kind of the best of both worlds. My mother was a bookkeeper. My father was a television repairman. Mm-hmm. And then I grew up there on that farm. So I got the best of both, I guess. Across the road, as you well know from the college, is uh, there's a grocery store that's been there forever and ever. And my grandfather used to he was good friends. It was Dobson's Grocery. He was good friends with George and, and Merle Dobson. And uh, we would take eggs uh, that my uh, grandmother, you know, harvested from our chickens. We'd take a bucket uh, of eggs to the grocery store and trade them to George uh, for uh, things like salt or oatmeal 
that you know we couldn't produce there on the farm. I remember walking with him and him carrying that bucket of eggs. I wasn't much taller than the, than where he was holding the bucket, you know. But uh, <laughs> I can certainly remember doing that. People would think you were crazy if you went in the grocery store now and said, "I've got eggs. Could you <laughs> will you swap with, for some oatmeal or bacon or something like that?" What good memories! Oh yeah. Now today we're talking about your book Appalachian Cooking, new and original recipes, and I'm excited about this book. I like this book too. Uh, of course, I I love to eat. Anybody that can take one look at me and tell me I like it and, and tell that I like to eat, but uh, it's lots of uh, traditional recipes that probably uh, the only other place you'll see some of them is if you have an old church cookbook from back in the day because it's the kind of food that people made to take to events like church suppers and so forth. And then there's the basic things uh, said many, many times that if you want to really get down to the basics of the uh, cooking in this part of the country, it's about beans and cornbread. Um, a lot of people that I know grew up, that's what we had every day. Uh, so uh, look at the restaurant menus around here how many restaurants you can find that still offer that as an option on the menu so mm-hmm. um, we talked about talked about that and all the different ways there are to make cornbread plus desserts uh, our desserts are simple but boy they're loaded with sugar and fat aren't they <laughs> <laughs> the good ones are the good ones are yeah <laughs> apple stack cakes probably the real classic and it's not as bad as some mm-hmm. uh, might be but uh, mm-hmm. Is your recipe with dried apples? How's it? Dried apples, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I don't think it really is a genuine apple stack cake unless you make it out of dried apples. And, and uh, the other thing, if you're making apple stack cake, you can't cheat. You can't. You have to bake each layer individually. And if you don't have uh, six or eight uh, cake pans, you have to take, take all afternoon and bake them and then let the pan cool down and bake two more layers and let the pans cool down. But it's worth it. Because when you're done, you've got 12 servings of something that's really, really delicious and really unique. I mean, uh, Well, if you're going to choose an apple to dry in order to then cook down to make your filling for your apple stack cake, what kind of apple would you reach for? You know, any heirloom that was grown locally as a cooking apple, that would be my first choice, regardless of what variety. But if you're limited to shopping in the grocery store, Cortland is by far and away the best drying apple. And I know the grocery store that I shop at has them every season there. They come in later than like your Galas and your Granny Smiths show up early. But the Cortlands don't show up until closer to Christmas usually. Okay. And they dry very successfully in the oven. I give instructions in the book how to do that, and that's the variety that I use. They won't brown after you cut them as quickly as most kinds of apples. So you don't have to put a lot of lemon juice or anything on there. You can just slice them up and put them on the baking sheet and put them in the oven and let them dry. And they'll turn golden brown, but they won't get the color of apple butter like would happen if you used something like a red delicious apple and in your book, you have written the most beautiful foreword. Do you mind to read that? Sure, I don't mind at all. To the brave women who came with their men into the Appalachian wilderness, who planted the gardens and raised the children and cooked and laid by and never wasted, and who made one-room cabins into loving homes, 
the author extends his heartfelt gratitude. Thank you, Mother. Thank you, Grandma. And thanks to the many who came before. Boy, that says it all, doesn't it? Yes, it sure does. The, uh, not only did those women participate in everything about the farming, they also had to keep up with the children and the chickens and the vegetable garden and all of that as well. Uh, it makes you wonder how anyone ever found time to do anything. But it seems they had a lot more leisure time than we did. Than we do. <laughs> We're too busy checking our phones. Yes, that's true. That's true. I don't think my grandparents would have had the faintest idea what to do with a cell phone. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and our guest is John Tullock, gardener, author, teacher, expert on growing almost anything, and native son to Greenville, Tennessee. We are discussing today his latest book entitled Appalachian Cooking, New and Traditional Recipes. He's going to share with us a recipe for succotash. Sure, I'd be glad to. I'll, uh, okay. I have one in particular in here that I think says a lot about not just Appalachian cooking itself, but how Appalachian cooking is such a uh, mixture of influences. The dish that I picked out to talk about is succotash. And that name, succotash, is, uh, according to uh, what I have read, is a Narragansett word that means broken corn kernels. So it's quite likely something that was taught to the colonists by the Native Americans. But the Narragansetts didn't live anywhere close to uh, Tennessee. They were up in New England where the earliest colonists arrived. So my guess is that this dish had not only been modified by different groups of Native Americans who used added ingredients that were available where they were living, but also has now been modified with influences from uh, European vegetables that uh, the Native Americans didn't know anything about. Most people think of succotash as sweet corn and lima beans, but the Narragansetts, to whom we are attributing this dish, couldn't have grown lima beans. They won't grow up there. That's a southern vegetable. They need much more warmth and a longer growing season. So the version that we're familiar with has to be something that was regionalized and no telling how long ago uh, that took place. But uh, it's really simple. Uh, I'm not even going to read the, uh, the exact directions, but I'll just tell you, you want to take onions and saute in a little oil in a skillet. And how many recipes do we start with sauteing onions? And then once those onions are softened, you add your vegetables. Uh, you can use lima beans and sweet corn. You can use green beans. You can add things like squash, carrots, anything of that nature and uh, that you happen to have in season, bearing in mind that corn is obviously is the essential ingredient. And then stir those together and allow the vegetables to tenderize a little bit and then add some vegetable stock and pop a lid on there and let it steam until the vegetables are tender. Season. Uh, I like to add thyme sprigs, but you could add whatever fresh herb that you happen to have in the garden. Oregano would be good. Basil would be good. Those both, all those go well with almost any vegetables. 
And then when everything's done, you adjust the seasoning with salt and pepper, and you've got a side dish uh, that goes with just about anything. Succotash is a good side dish with uh, things like pork chops or uh, old country ham, biscuits. And it's just a good general side dish. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. My guest has been John Tullock, author of Appalachian Cooking, New and Traditional Recipes. He keeps a blog and adds to it about every week, and that is found at johntullock.blogspot.com. And I've also added a link to that as well as a few links where you can find this book and links to all of my guests on my website, tennesseefarmtable.com. Next up, we'll hear from Fred Sossman about the Hobnob Drive-In. This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Saussman. Oh, goodness sakes. That's just based on the past. She know my grandparents. Those kinds of impromptu reunions are everyday occurrences for Ross Jenkins, who owns the Hobnob Drive-In just outside Gate City, Virginia. Ross's grandparents, Bent and LG Strong, opened the Hobnob in 1952 and it has never moved from the original location. When it first started out, they had three booths and about seven stools. I asked Ross how his grandparents came up with the unforgettable name, Hobnob. When they were building their original building, the stonemasons were laying the stone around the block at the bottom. And he said, what are, you, uh, what are y'all doing? said, well, we're, you know, we're going to build a drive-in restaurant. He said, well, y'all are going to have a hobnob of the time out here. And in 67, when they built the bypass, my grandparents thought, you know, it's over. Like so many places, when uh, four-lane goes around you, you die off. But exactly the opposite happened. In the early 70s, my grandfather expanded it. The menu at today's hobnob is not much different from what Bent and LG Strong served in the 50s, with one exception. Our specialty burger is the emu. Devon Thacker has managed the hobnob for over 30 years, and she knows how to cook emu. We put something over top of it to let it cook a little slower, to let it kind of stay a little juicy, because it doesn't have a lot of fat in it. I asked Ross Jenkins how he directs people to the hobnob. If you think you've gone too far, you probably got a little further to go. For Potluck Radio at the Hobnob Drive-In in Scott County, Virginia, I'm Fred Saussman. Let's hear from Dee and Jim Brown. They own and run Honey Rock Herb Farm in Louisville, Tennessee, and Dee is going to share with us how she likes to make her cornbread with sage. Well, we're talking with Dee Brown, and Dee and Jim own and run Honey Rock Herb Farm here in Louisville, Tennessee, and we're talking about cornbread today, and uh, they raise culinary herbs here at Honey Rock Herb Farm, and I'm trying to pull a recipe out of Dee. <laughs> Dee, you, you let it out of the bag. You told me that you do a good sage cornbread. Well, I don't have a recipe, as many people don't have recipes, but I do like a good cornmeal Locally, if I could get it, good coarse cornmeal. Last I got, I think, was from the uh, farm. Uh, hickory cane. 
cornmeal. It was really good. And I do from scratch, not any of the <laughs> instant cornmeal stuff. And I just add some sage to it, either fresh or dried. I like fresh. Just chop it up, and I don't know exactly how much. And another, rosemary is also good in cornbread. Yummy. You know, it gives it a good herbal flavor. Yeah. Never put sugar in cornbread. Never put egg in cornbread. I always use butter. <laughs> and plenty of it. That does not sound bad. Pretty good cornbread. <laughs> Jim, you like that cornbread? I do. I do like it. The sage cornbread especially is really good. But got to have good butter. <laughs> yes, that's and right. good cornmeal. Well, Dee and Jim, thanks for talking about your cornbread. Thank you, Mamie. Mm-hmm. And speaking of good butter to serve on that cornbread, how about making our own butter from heavy whipping cream? My next guest is Iva Spoon Wild, and she's going to tell us how. I recorded this at Iva's house in Wallen, Tennessee, a couple of years back. Iva is a woman who often has cooked over the open fire during the Blue Ribbon Country Fair days before COVID at the Great Smoky Mountains Heritage Center in Townsend, Tennessee. Iva grew up on a farm during the lean years of the first half of the 20th century and was taught by her grandmother how to make and preserve foods. She has amassed a wealth of knowledge on how we can make and preserve our own foods, and I believe she told me that she could dress a chicken at the age of six, and her grandmother used to like to brag on that about her. In this recording, you will also hear her grandfather clock chiming in the background, a grandfather clock that she made herself. I think this woman can do just about anything. Did I tell you how to make butter? No, I meant to ask you. I'm so glad you brought that up. Well, we do it because we don't have a cow. (laughs) So we buy heavy whipping cream. And you just put it in a jar. You wouldn't probably want to put the whole quart, you know, maybe a, ha- a pint. And just gently shake. You have to have the the cream at room temperature. I mean, don't want it too cold. Not, if it's too cold, it's going to make whipped cream. Uh-huh. If it's too warm, it won't gather. That's what you call your butter will gather, you know, and uh, clump. Yes. But just put it in a jar and just gently shake, just like this. Hmm. And it'll take probably 10 minutes and then it'll it'll start making butter and clump up then together and then you take that butter out of the jar and you wash it that's what you call it you wash it you want to get all the milk out of it if you don't if you keep that any length of time it will sour the milk will so so you wash it really well with cold water and when you you wash until you don't see any more milk come out I mean like cloudy clouded water come out of it mm-hmm. and you'll know that it's clean then and a little salt and uh, but if you had a cow you would milk the cow and um, it would take several days to, the cream will come to the top of the milk and so you will skim that off and put it in your churn and you'll do that several days until you get enough milk to make your butter and uh, it has to sour you know, that's where you get your buttermilk. And it will do it quicker if you'll put a little buttermilk in that. You know, if you've got some buttermilk to put in it. But it has to sour. That's where you get your buttermilk. And you just churn it in a big churn. You know, you've got the wooden churns or the 
uh, crop churns and um, and the same process when it gathers then you're going to get it out and wash it and all that and then it's nice to put it in a butter mold when you've got a lot you know you can mold it yes and um and make it look real pretty otherwise just put it in the bowl or something you know yes have kind of round uh-huh. yeah round. just just mm-hmm. put it because you're going to be using it you know but that's something else um, so when you put that cream in there over a course of days and it now makes, that's if you've got a cow and a milk cow. Uh, but the but the uh uh, heavy whipping cream no you just mm-hmm. you want it to right temperature That's and right. you can tell the the jar how the the jar feels you know mm-hmm. if it's cold or Co- too yeah. hot mm-hmm. you don't want too cold or not too warm mm-hmm. it just won't gather if it's too warm but you don't want whipped cream either <laughs> <laughs> I've made that mistake before <laughs> definitely yeah. <laughs> well I like too that um, you're talking about using This is Alan Benton, and you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.